0: Hey guys, here today we're going to talk about growing with fishes. Growing with fishes. We have uh, Joe uh, Joe Pate, he's done a lot of really awesome research with aquaponics. Uh, he was formerly over at the uh, University of Kentucky State learning <laughs> all kinds of awesome things about aquaponics and hemp, and, uh, and is now uh, doing, uh, has his own company where he's out there helping people uh, uh, with, their, with their farms. And uh, he's gonna be talking to us about all, all kinds of cool stuff today. So thanks a lot for joining us, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. I'm glad to be here today. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and start sharing my screen and uh, we'll just start moving forward. All right, everything look good on your end? Awesome. So uh, uh, thank you all for coming and tuning in today. My name is Joe Pate. I am the founder of Regen Aquaculture, an agricultural consulting company and biotech company focused on um, regenerative aquaculture systems like aquaponics and other integrated um, aquaculture systems. And today I will be talking to you about moving past the essential elements for plants. Um, This is a fun topic, I think. Uh, We should hopefully learn a lot going through. And if you have any questions, you know, hold them till the end and uh, be sure to send them over to Steve and Marty and we'll try to get you answered. Um, So where do we begin? Well, when we talk about plant health, um, you know, that's really the foundation of what we're looking to do. We're looking to grow plants that are naturally um, more productive. So, you know, heavier yields that are producing more chemicals, which, you know, are either beneficial to humans, um, they're able to withstand disease and pest, uh, and, and so on, you know. And so, this is really the foundation, what we really are trying to achieve in agriculture, whether it's um, growing food crops or whether it's growing cannabis. And so when we look into, you know, kind of what makes up plant health, um, that really breaks down into really three categories which drive that. We have the environment, genetics, and plant nutrition. Um, You know, how Well, the environment matches up to the plant's needs is going to affect how well that plant's able to perform. If it has the right amount of light, if it has the right amount of CO2, of um, water, say maybe even vapor pressure deficits, right? And maybe it changes throughout the plant's stages of life. Um, Genetics, you know, I think this is one we look at quite often and, you know, spend hundreds of billions of dollars trying to. Um, get the best genetics and either do that through pedigree or even now through, you know, genetic um, engineering and altering the plants to be able to, uh, you know, do better, perform better and to be healthier. Uh, And then we have plant nutrition, which, you know, just like us, uh, you know, we can have the right environment and the right genetics, but if we don't have the right food, the right nutrients uh, going into our bodies, and then we're just not gonna be healthy, um, you know. And these three components, you know, are generally what we talk about when we describe growing a healthy plant. And we even start to see that all of those are really connected. So, you know, the environment and the plant plays a role in how well the plant can absorb those nutrients. Um, say it's the environment of having lots of, you um, right redox state or pH is right or something along those lines uh for plant nutrition if you don't have or rather you know genetics play a role in how well we're able to absorb nutrients how well we're able to utilize them metabolize them put them into use um and then you know both of these play a role in genetics uh over time you have uh hereditary traits which are basically stored genetics you know they're the information from our parents' um, environment and their plant nutrition and how healthy they were were able to express in, you know, their offspring. Uh, And these play a huge role all together in driving that plant health. Now today we're going to be just focusing on the plant nutrition side. Um, You know, I think some of the talks we've covered uh, you know, environmental issues and genetic issues, and, and even touched on plant nutrition. Um, so I'm just going to dive a little bit deeper into that and really start maybe hoping you uh, to look at plant nutrition and how we see plant health in a different way. So when we look at plant health uh, and plant nutrition, we generally break this down into minerals. Uh, you type in plant nutrition on Google and, you know, you know, very first thing that comes up is essential elements, you know, talking about minerals, macro, micro, and so on. And, um, that is really, you know, the understanding that most conventional knowledge has taught us over the last hundred years or so. Um, I think now, you know, we're starting to see that. There is a big role that biology plays in the overall availability of minerals and that really both of these drive into um, plant nutrition and that uh, you need both of these in order to, you know, constitute what we can call plant nutrition uh, and leading into higher up plant health. And, um, you know, we're going to kind of go past This understanding, which, you know, I think hasn't been the most common knowledge, Uh, really, if you look at it, you know, our understanding of biology interaction with minerals and how that affects plant nutrition. um, Much of that work has been done in the last 40 or 50 years, uh, uh, thanks to the help of lots of renowned individuals um, that really have helped uncode, you know, kind of what's going on. Um, But kind of ignoring biology for right now and focusing on mineral nutrition, because, you know, that's what conventional knowledge has kind of taught us is to focus on these minerals. Um, And those usually break down into what we call the essential uh, elements or the essential minerals. And that's our macronutrients and our uh, macronutrients. And that's pretty much about how far we talk about it um and you know whether you're in colleges or in high school you know this is or googling on the internet these are pretty much the first things that pop up when you look at mineral nutrition of plants um and so we have to kind of step back and take a look at you know how we came up with this idea of these macro and micro elements are the essential elements that These are what a plant needs in order to grow and be productive and be healthy. Um, And do that, we take a step back to this definition of um, what we call essential nutrients. Uh, And so this was created by Dr. Daniel Arnon in 1953. Uh, And he basically said that one, a plant cannot complete its life cycle without this element. Um, two no other element can perform the same function of the of the element and three the element uh, is directly involved with metabolism and these have been and uh, you know played a large role in shaping how we understand plant minerals and plant nutrition today and when we look at this um, you know I think it it is very important uh, because it gives us kind of the foundation of looking at, you know, where it all started and just a little background I think it's important, um, you know, going into who these people are, you know, these uh, um, leaders that kind of set forth the path and the pioneers that kind of set forth the way for uh, younger generations. And so, uh, you know, Dr. Arnon, he, uh, is a very well-renowned and well-respected scientist who did a lot of work and research into uh, how plants photosynthesize, how they are able to um, interact on a biochemical level, and the definition of these plant nutrients. And um, Dr. Arnon was actually a student, a PhD student of uh, Forget his first name, but Dr. Hogland, right now, um, who many of you all might recognize, you know, the kind of the Hogland solution uh, for hydroponics. And, um, you know, I may have heard that. Well, Arnon was his student. And if you want to learn more, there's this great uh, memoir that I actually found a few days ago that. just really summarizes life in a really cool and unique way. And so, you know, it played a lot of importance and kind of understanding. But what that gave us was uh, this, you know, we have our micronutrients and our macronutrients and they make up about 16 elements. And here I've actually split up um, nitrogen into ammonium and nitrates, uh, the two forms that we commonly talk about nitrogen being formed or absorbed by. Um, And I did that just kind of step out, separate out uh, the charges of the two elements. uh, One being positive, the other being a negatively charged ion. And so this was our circle and it it has been, you know, we focus on these. We talk about iron, manganese, boron, molybdenum, zinc, copper and so on. Um, But you know as you can imagine this is kind of limiting and so we go back to this definition and uh pretty soon after it was actually written uh, another doctor um dr nicholas in 1961 actually amended this and um said that no number two isn't quite right and in fact let's say that if uh say the addition of an element enhances the plant growth, uh, even though it acts as a substitute for one of those 16 essential elements that are undescribed. Well, then in that case, it should be considered an essential element. And this was Nicholas's uh, definition, which expanded us out a little bit. We ended up gaining a few uh, nutrients, uh, predominantly nickel, uh, silicone, and uh, vanadium, vanadium, which uh, really these nutrients go back and forth between being considered a a essential element and not. um, And it kind of depends on whose definitions you're looking and what research you're looking at often look at literature it goes back and forth between whether there's 16 uh, or 20 essential amino acids i'm sorry essential elements and uh, that ranges in between there sometimes but again you know we kind of see how this breaks down another way of looking at that is here we have um the periodic table and I've went ahead and listed what the macronutrients and micronutrients look like and this is our basic understanding as of 1961 Uh, and you know it's been uh, developed on since then but this is the basic understanding we have about 20 uh, nutrients that are considered essential and everything else we didn't know um, and, it, and you know you, you can imagine here this looks pretty blank, um, and it makes you start to wonder, well, if these are important, what do all of these other things do? Um, and you know, uh, great question. Before we get into that, let's look at you know what we get when we just focus on these nutrients. So here you see an aquaponic system. This is uh, from a research uh, system that I was operating back during my time at Kentucky State University and we had six replicate systems. Here you see just the two, but a big overgrowth of plants. I mean, this looks like it's producing really well and you know anybody who is hungry or loves vegetables would love to see this and be really happy with it. Um, You know, if you pay attention and you look close, you can see some nutrient deficiencies throughout here, some calcium deficiency causing rippling, um, a little bit of uh, senescence on the leaves, which is most likely caused by some elements, I would say probably molybdenum or manganese or boron um, or sulfur um, or iron even, but Uh, you know, overall looks like a really healthy plant. You also get plants that look like this. Um, Now on the left here, this, I know I didn't step back and take a good picture of the plants beforehand or a farther back picture, but um, this is a hemp plant that was outdoors in some research trials and soil at Kentucky State. And this plant's about four and a half foot tall by four feet in diameter roughly speaking. And, you know, a lot of people when they see that they might be like, oh, that's a really great plant. I really like that plant um, and be really happy with that. Um, you know, and you look at the stem over here to the right. Uh, I mean, it, it's pretty thick stem. It looks healthy. It looks like that is gonna be able to take up lots of nutrients, lots of water and give the plant everything it needs. Uh, but you know, then you start looking and you see. Well, if you look closer at this plant, you might notice some stretching of the nodes uh, or a longer internode distance. You might see some senescence on the plant uh, that you know uh, does happen eventually, but uh, is often also driven by our nutrient availability. And a closer look at that same plant. So now you see, I mean, you're getting some good color development in here, uh, but you know, we obviously have some insect issues on the leaves. We even maybe have start to have some uh, hemp russet mites or uh, maybe botrytis or something going on in here. I didn't look too closely with a um, scope to really see what was attacking these plants um, just because it wasn't really available at that time, but, um, you know we start to see this and for a lot of us this might seem normal you know uh you might see occurrences of this and so on and think yeah that's my plants look like that um but you know you also when you're focusing on that mineral nutrition you start to see or rather just those essential elements um you start to see you know issues with maybe pythium or fusarium or uh Rhizoctonium, you know, so root rot or stem rots that start eating away your healthy plant. You might see issues with spider mites or aphids which I know uh, are big in the cannabis community um, as well as a lot of other agricultural fields. And you see a lot of powdery mildew instances around those leaves too. And so, uh, you know, these are all things we hate to see, but, you know, we've pretty much uh, made a common site in agriculture. And we say, oh yeah, that's a common thing, you know, and uh, we then say, you know, here are these tools to get rid of that. And we provide our growers lots of, you know, chemicals that are highly oxidative or pesticides, uh, miticides, fungicides, etc., which, you know, sterilize and kill all of the life on the plants and that's pretty much conventional agriculture and um that is what it is but um when we look at these plants what they're really telling us is that these plants are nutrient deficient um how do we know these plants are nutritionally deficient well simple because healthy plants don't get sick, and I know this seems um, like a uh, alien concept, maybe to some. Uh, but you know, this same message has been uh, put out to our community through you know great leaders like uh, Don Huber or uh, I forget uh, Dr. Rodell's name at the Rodell Institute or Elaine Ingham, or uh, John Kempf, or, you know, some of these other ones. But basically, you know, when you have a healthy plant, plant, um, you know, we have a plant that has the right environment, we have a plant that has the right genetics, and we have a plant that has the right nutrition. When you have those three, it's like us. It's like a athlete in its prime. Um, diseases and viruses don't affect it so much. Not to say they're always 100% immune, but they're pretty, they seem like it. They're able to go years and years and years without getting sick, um, you know, for us humans. And uh, the plants are no different, really. We need to think about, you know, building up their immune system, their ability to fight these pests and diseases. And going farther in this, you know, it comes down to a bigger question of kind of redefining how we see pest. Um, and, you know, generally when we think of pest, well, this is what we see, or, you know, what we imagine these insects coming in here, uh, they're eating our crops, destroying them, uh, making them so that customers like them less. And it seems like they are all there just in spite of you. And um, sometimes, especially if you go about it in conventional approaches, it can seem like a losing battle trying to fight these insects. And it it really can be, um, you know, because frankly, we're growing unhealthy plants and that's drawing in healthy food for these guys. Um, And, you know, I, I think we need to change that view and kind of start saying, all right, planting insects aren't our enemy. They're not out there to get us. They're not not out here to make our jobs harder or to make our lives miserable or to make us lose money. They are nature's cleanup crew. They are taking the food that frankly is not fit for us, you know, to be considered medicine for our consumption. Uh, that is high in sugars and high in nitrates and uh, nitrogen and um, other simple compounds that basically uh, don't do us any good. And so when you have a healthy plant, this is actually what insects are to see. And when you look into the communications of it, it's really uh, a fascinating field, but this is it. It's pitch black when the insects are flying around. They don't see a healthy plant. Now, when you have a nutritional imbalance, um, what they see is this. A big neon sign that says, come eat me. I am food for you. I, want, I am ready to die. Put me out of my misery. Um, you know, kill me so the strong can survive. And this is the message plants are sending to the insects. Um, You know, it's not necessarily um, that, you know, say these insects and plants didn't co-evolve to, you know, constantly be competing with each other, but actually that's just the fact they did co evolve you know, so the plants are always trying to get stronger and get better. And the insects are always trying to develop and be able to consume Uh, or rather, you know, pass on their genes as the overall life goal, but be able to consume when you look at kind of evolutionary roles, be able to consume larger molecules, um, things that are more complex, and then plants make them more complex and insects can't eat them. And insects get more complex digestive systems, and then they eat the plants. And it kind of, you know, creates this symbiotic relationship um, in that coevolution of things. And I won't go into this too much today, though it is really a great and, and really fascinating topic. Um, here's another image of what they might look like. So insects, you know what say for flying insects that are high above the atmosphere or you know high above in the atmosphere. They are flying around and the red spots are basically the food, the, you know, other stuff they might see a little bit interest in, they might see none, they might see some, but they are really being lit up like that neon sign being drawn into, to those unhealthy plants. Um, And, you know, we're not going to go into this too much, but some farther resources on this, which each one of these I think are an excellent read. Um, And, you know, if, you are having issues finding hard copies of them. Uh, I think if you look hard enough, you'll be able to find lots of copies of these on the internet um, that are available for your use. Um, And so, you know, I, the biology of plant insect interactions, um, bioelectrodynamics and biocommunication, plant intelligence, tuning into nature, uh, you know, these are all great books that kind of go farther into this and there's, A lot more that get into um, kind of uh, biocommunication and um, this great, great topic. But moving forward, so we are going to say you have been convinced that, all right, disease and pest issues are a result of nutritional imbalance. And that means we need to expand how we see our nutrition of plants. Um, you know, we start to expand this out and this is, you know, even more common of what we see today. Uh, but, you know, we have macronutrients, micronutrients, beneficial nutrients, some minerals of concern, and still our group of unknown minerals. Um, and when we start laying that out, this is kind of what we start to get. And I didn't lay out all of the beneficial elements um, on this slide because it started to get a little much, but here you see on the bottom half um, from nickel to Vandenium, you have our micronutrients uh, or, and you know sometimes beneficial nutrient uh, for silicone and Vandenium are considered they switch back and forth. And the macronutrients on the top, calcium the tass- to phosphorus and up, and the cations on the left, and the anions on the right. And this is kind of a nice way of laying it out because um, it allows you to start kind of seeing why and how these things interact with each other in terms of their nutrient uptake. And really, uh, this is a fun chart I've been playing with, and have even expanded it out to where it gets pretty complex, looking at you know the mobility of those nutrients and more interactions between them. But hey, um, won't able to show you that today just because it's a a lot to get into. But putting this on a maybe a simpler view, you know, we'll throw it up on this periodic table uh, because it is something we're all so familiar with. But, you know, when we look at things, this has started to grow quite a bit from that table we saw, you know, in 1961. Um, Now we've got a lot of our beneficial nutrients on here, and they're kind of filling in a lot of these blank spots. Um, And, you know, uh, I'll go into some of these in a few, but um, really a lot of these beneficial nutrients and minerals of concern, uh, it kind of changes depending on what species of plant you have, Uh, the stage of its life, things like this in terms of how much you need and whether something is a beneficial nutrient or going to be a toxic nutrient. Um, In most instances, uh, there are the rare occasions, but most of these beneficial nutrients that you see are in quantities in the soils uh, that we grow in that, you know, they're typically not going to be High enough to be toxic concerns, unless you're near a mining facility or perhaps you have um, some other factor going on. Extremely low pH due to, you know, aspirin or you know, um, whatever it might be. Uh, So, moving forward to that. Well, yeah, moving forward, we'll go ahead and keep going. So we're gonna look at some of these nutrients and what their kind of roles are. Uh, the first I think that we should really talk about is silicon, which uh, I know Roger mentioned this a little bit the other day, but this is really a nutrient at which, uh, I mean, even according to uh, Dr. Nicholas's Definition of essential nutrients. silicone plays into the role of an essential nutrient. Um, other people's definitions. They say no, it's a beneficial nutrient. Some say it's a even a functional nutrient. Now they've come up with some of these terms. Um, but saying that you know it has a role, but the plant can grow without it. Um, and sure, that's true. The plant can grow. Um, you'll see, like we saw those plants. In the back uh, you know a few slides back you know with heavy amounts of uh, disease and insect issues Um, and when we look at silicone you know there's been a lot of confusion because it's usually broken up into high accumulators medium accumulators and non-accumulators which i've relabeled as passive accumulators so uh, our high accumulators are plants that actively take this up and that might be sorghum or rice or wheat um you know grain crops, grass crops, generally that uh, actively take up silicone and and need it in order to put into the structure and growth of the plant and in order to become resistant to lots of stress and disease issues. Um, We have medium accumulators like your cucumbits, uh, even tomatoes and you know things along those lines. this is taken up less but still really important and then you have our passive accumulators and I've changed this from being non-accumulators to passive accumulators because when you looked up the definition of non-accumulators basically what it said is that the plant takes up this nutrient at about the same rate as water so it's not actively eating this nutrient, so to say, but it's, it's drinking it with its water and it's putting it into its leaves. And, you know, it may not be actively consuming it, but because it is passively uptaking it, I think, you know, we should not say that these are non-accumulators because in fact they, they do accumulate uh, silicone and there's been lots of studies to document that and support that, but um, they actually benefit from it. And when you think about how that happens, well, this is a really great slide here, Here's my um, uh, picture, but when you look out here on the side, how we look at it is that normally when you have the plant, if you don't, or rather in a healthy plant, what you might see is you have this cuticle layer, this waxy layer that develops on the leaves, and sometimes it's really shiny, sometimes it's less shiny and it's, you know, largely attributed to the amount of lipids in the plant and, uh, and how those distribute. Um, then you have a silica layer, which basically creates this really big wall, this shield in between the cell wall and the cuticle. And then you have the cell wall, the plasma membrane, everything below. Now in healthy plants, the fungi or the insects will be on top of this plant. They'll bite through the cuticle but they won't be able to extend past the silica layer. And when you look at what silica happens in the plant leaves, it starts to get into this amorphous state where it's really crystalline. And um, it's just really in fungi and insects hate it, catch them up, you know, it's no good. It's, It's a very good blocker. Now, when you don't have that, what happens is the fungi or the insect can go right through the cuticle into the cell wall and now they are actively attacking the inside of the plant. And now you're gonna start seeing the plant react to that by, you know, sending um, various defense mechanisms, whether that's salicylic uh, acid or something else to, you know, begin shutting off that leaf and everything. Um, just to kind of show a little bit more on the silica. Uh, So these are some benefits shown with applying this in plants. So drought tolerance, uh, better temperature tolerances, better resistance to heavy UV lights, um, heavy metals, salinity, um, able to better handle living stresses like disease or fungi or pathogens, or even uh, in some cases herbivores and um, you know, this exists in many forms in the soil, but the only form that's really available is going to be this monosiliac acid form. And um, that is heavily produced in soils. Uh, you know, if you look at silicone, the second most abundant element on the earth. Um, and it's heavy in the soils, but it's often not bioavailable unless you, we have a heavy biology which fuels into the production of this monocytic acid and that's because those bacteria and fungi and other things you know other microbes produce um, organic acids that and the as well as the plants that do that help solubilize this nutrient and when you look at that in humans we see that, yeah, it actually plays a lot of roles in human health too. It reduces cardiovascular disease, reduces Alzheimer's um, induced by aluminum, um, strengthen bones, connective tissues, reduces uh, alopecia um, and, and so on. So a lot of factors in the plants and in us for health. Um, silicone has a synergistic relationship with boron, calcium, copper in building that sill wall that cell wall um, for health and overall plant immunity and protection and production. Uh, and so it's, can't emphasize it enough, it's really integral to be applying to our systems, especially if you're growing in aquaponics or hydroponics um, where we don't have access to those uh, soils or that's high amounts in soils. The forms we apply these are potassium silicate, uh, which is applied to the roots or the foliage, Um, sometimes fermented plants like stinging nettle and horsetail, and there's some others, Um, or even now they have refined monosilic acid, which you can spray on as a foyer spray. Uh, The effectiveness of these all kind of changes depending on the plant and the mode of uptake and things like that. Um, But the best way to apply uh, in terms of cost is going to be to the foliage and then also to the roots in aquaponics because foliage especially in hydroponics and soil in aquaponics it's going to be important for the foliage but really also in the roots just because um you know we need to buffer our ph anyways and uh, you know or rather uh, bring up our ph anyways and potassium silicate can be a great replacement for potassium carbonate uh, and um, just be really great addition to the system. that's easy to add, um, and I know Retro Nutrients. You know they're selling this, and uh, gave some away yesterday. So uh, get you some definitely. Uh, looking at iodine implants. Now, when we talk about uh, iodine, um, you know we this isn't one we often talk about implants at all. Uh, we s- We're almost never talking about it. Uh, And yet it is often deficient. It's a mobile nutrient. So those deficiencies often show up in the other leaves. Uh, It's unique. uh, And there are a few elements like this, but it can actually be absorbed in the gaseous state through the leaves, through the stomata, um, or through the roots um, as, uh, you know, these four, few different forms. And uh, it is heavily taken up by the xylem, but then it is also able to to be redistributed slowly by the phylum inside the plant. Um, It's stored in the cuticle waxes. So, you know, building up disease to, a resistance to plant disease, as we saw in that last picture with the silicone, the cuticle layer is important. Um, Builds up in the fruits, seeds and roots. Um, And it's a strong antioxidant it plays a major role in you know the plant's ability to fight these things as long as antioxidant rolls roles for us and a really interesting fact I learned you know, while I was you know learning more about iodine was there's actually only about nine years of farmable uh, reserves left in the soil uh, without us actively applying it to our plants and that is the same whether it's uh, large-scale agro crops or cannabis or um, food crops, vegetable crops, um, you know, we just don't have that much amount of it. Another interesting fact is the ocean is the largest sink of it. Um, so it just sitting all right there. Um, but, uh, you know, then we say, okay, what is the role of iodine and maybe human health? Um, and, well, when you look at it, in the WHO, the World Health Organization said iodine deficiencies are the most common or among the most common nutrient deficiencies in the world. And you can see areas with high risk, uh, you know, in a lot of uh, more heavily developed countries, you see it's not predominantly an issue. Uh, but in regions where it, it is an issue, uh, it causes numerous issues, which really the most identifiable that kind of sticks out to us is this uh, thyroidism or hyperthyroidism and causing what's known as goiters, a swelling of the thyroid and the throat, and, you know, it's really painful and uh, hurtful illness, and our solution to that is we throw some table salt on there. We uh, iodized it, and we said, all right, it, you know, throw this on your food, and we're going to be able to meet our needs of the iodine and that's been our band-aid for a a long time to fix these issues and i mean it works if you look at that map uh, there's quite a bit of the world that isn't affected but it doesn't really solve anything that's why you know i think expanding on this more as a nutrient is important and there's some really cool papers that were recently published which showed um, the availability for iodine to be used as a, a mineral for biofortification of plants. So creating plants that are stronger, um, healthier for humans, and then if they're healthier for us, then, uh, you know, they're going to be less healthy for pest and disease, you know, because often pests and disease, uh, if you look at their role on the evolutionary chain, are again, really Kind of simple creatures, you know, and they're rather complex, but digestively speaking, you know, they're pretty simple. Um, and, you know, you Google iodine biofilcation and you'll see paper after paper in recent last few years. And this is, you know, these last, all these top ones are in the last four years. Um, and then I also really like the title of this paper iodine biofortification of four brassica genotypes is effective already in low rates of potassium iodate. It's great. It's already effective. We already know that it works and we know how to apply it. Um, And then we are able to produce food where now we don't need that iodine supplementation from salt. We're getting it from our vegetables. And this is Especially true in um, leafy greens are more heavily accumulators of this than uh, the fruiting portion of crops, and so that's the same, you know, say in uh, leaves of um, a tomato plant. Not that you'd want to eat those because you're poisonous, but they would have higher levels of the iodine in the leaves versus the fruits uh, of those plants. Um, so iodine has a synergistic and antagonistic effect with the selenium and silicon um depending on how high a level it's in it's got a synergistic relationship between cations especially potassium magnesium calcium manganese um, cadmium uh, and the the ways that we're going to be applying those if you should be in you know the form of potassium iodate uh which can be applied as a foyer spray. Seaweeds have also been shown as having, not always because not all seaweeds are extracted equally, but um, seaweeds often will also have uh, adequate levels of iodine in them for the plants to meet these nutritional requirements of humans uh, and plants, which may not be essential, but has been shown to improve their health. We'll apply that as a foyer spray or even seawater. As we said, the ocean has the biggest sink of it, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, so moving on, we're gonna look at selenium. And I chose these three elements because they play a large role in human health as well as plant health, um, but a larger role, I think, in human health, or at least a more relatable role in human health. Um, So when we talk about, uh, you know, selenium, we generally never talk about it, but when we look at it, uh, it's especially important in the synthesis of selenium-based amino acids, especially those that have to do with methionine and cysteine, which are uh, heavily re- those are our sulfur bearing amino acids also um, and so you know you can imagine that the selenium and sulfur will play a role together in being able to function as well as it should um, so selenium is up taken through the roots in you know a few different forms uh, but when it's done so it is able to uh, Be put into developing of these healthy proteins, and we actually see, you know, even, you know, this is a trace element, so required in very small amounts, but it is, uh, you, we saw increases in photosynthesis, helped the regulation of the uh, reactive oxidation of the species. So that's um, basically how. When a plant gets attacked, how heavily is it gonna try to uh, oxidize that that disease? Or sometimes you might even have unwanted oxidization inside of the plant, that's not a result of insects, but sometimes a result of environmental uh, stimuli. Uh, But it helps regulate that and control the plant's ability to not over-oxidize, but not underoxidized reduces metal toxicities, and improves growth and development, um, helps maintain cellular structure and function with the building of those proteins and enzymes and amino acids, um, and then helps distribution of the essential elements, um, especially you know, those cations we looked at earlier. When we look at how this plays a role in humans, um, well, it's important for building and maintaining gut lining. Um, In fact, having a lack of it in our diet can cause a reduction of our gut lining, which uh, leaves us open to diseases, uh, you know, like leaky gut syndrome, which plays in, which is really uh, a foundational step in illness for humans because it opens up a path of susceptibility into our immune system, and it allows for... um, toxins to be taken up or to be not taken up and regulated the right ways and the cause for other disruptions, you know, um, including in disruptions of the endocrine system, uh, you know, so our hormone system affects in the thyroid, the kidneys, the liver, the um, gonads, um, and so on. Uh, it can lead to, de- deficiencies can lead to infertility, um immune issues we already mentioned hypothyroidism deficiencies are rare in the u.s and canadian soils um just because we tend to have quite a bit of it but interestingly enough it's not always the case uh in indoor agriculture because sometimes the soils that we're using don't have it in adequate amounts Uh, and, and then in addition to this in hydroponics and aquaponics deficiencies are very common uh, you know, we almost never talk about selenium, and you know, I can't think of you know any real conversations I've had with um, you know some of the leaders in the industry about you know adding this, where they have said they are adding it or they applied in small amounts, um, but even as little as two to six parts per million, uh, we can see that the nutritional requirements for selenium are for the human diet are met in the plants we produce by you know, providing that small amount. We see selenium has synergistic relationships with uh, nitrogen, sulfur, magnesium, molybdenum, iodine, and other trace elements. And really, you know, if you look at those, those are foundation, foundational elements into building chloroplast and chlorophyll um, and proteins. And so plays a large role in these as well as uh, an antagonistic relationship between silver and arsenic and cadmium and uh, mercury and titanium um, where, uh, you know, it can prevent the uptake of these, which some of these are heavy metals um, that, you know, in too high levels can be really harmful. So forms apply uh to the roots or foyer spray or seleninate to the roots or foyer spray. Uh, you know, I think, to be honest, foyer sprays are really the way to go uh, with this uh, because you, know, you just need such little to apply. Um, all right, so we've talked about, you know, these essential elements. Um, now, what else is needed? And we go back to our chart on the periodic table and we say, I'm not really sure. You know, we have no idea uh, of what these other elements do at this moment in time, and we are continuously learning uh, in greater detail with the increase in technologies how these elements play a role in uh, developing human health and plant health and animal health and, uh, you know, looking and starting to expand on, you know, how they can actually improve our lives outside of, you know, just focusing on these macro and micronutrients. So you might ask, well, Joe, how do we know what we don't apply? Or how do we apply what we don't know? And I mean, I think that's a great question. And while we think about it, I wanted to just take a second and, you know, stare at the ocean. It's a really beautiful, beautiful uh, scene. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I we reflecting and thinking about how can we apply these? Maybe the answer is right before our eyes. It's the ocean, um, you know, and the ocean is something that when you look at it over millions of years with the fall of rain, uh, we have constantly been bringing all of this accumulation of minerals, that plants need and that are available in soils, all down into the oceans, and you know bringing it all down and just hosting it there for us, um, and really, I think it's one of the biggest overlooks of available nutrition, especially when we talk about these trace elements, which you know may not be considered beneficial by uh, Arnon's definition but or rather essential and sometimes even beneficial um, by some of those definitions. But again, you know, we don't know the roles that a lot of these play. It wasn't too long ago that we knew the roles of iodine in our food or the roles of chloride or the roles of arsenic um, in terms of beneficial stuff, you know, not to mention the, of course, the toxins and, and things like that. And when you get to the ocean, You know, there's over 92 plus minerals in there and 50,000 plus organic compounds more, you know, bound up in uh, living organisms and uh, created as exudates by plants and fungi and um, zooplankton and other organisms in the sea. And these are all just waiting for us. Um, Now, there are some concerns with that. Uh, Contamination is a big one. You know, we have some of the worst polluted oceans, uh, the worst polluted oceans in history, and maybe they're getting a little bit better with strives towards ocean cleanup. But in reality, you know, we're still um, heavily polluting our our waterways and our oceans. And that is, you know, putting in chemicals and hormones and uh, Toxins that are bioaccumulating in the food chain, and we're starting to see that. So there are issues of contamination. Um, there's also some issues of salt toxicity. Uh, processing the salt, you know, how do we dry it? You know, it might take a lot of energy if you know we were going to be distributing it uh, out, and you know, maybe those both, while getting this nutrient, play a role in uh, increasing carbon production uh, because, you know, now you're having to transport those nutrients, but it's not much different than mining those nutrients and uh, potentially, you know, maybe even less harmful than mining since we're not necessarily digging into the earth. Um, There's a lot more research on this done uh, by uh, a lot of teachings in Korean natural farming and other natural farming Methods as well as some work done out of the um, center of, I believe it's the center of tropical uh, agriculture uh, out of Hawaii. If you type in sea, uh, diluted seawater and Hawaii, those will pop up. And, you know, forms to apply are generally. Listed, but here's some 1 in 30 dilution if you're applied on a foyer spray, if you're pulling it out of the ocean, if you're mixing it up from a, another mix that isn't exactly one gram per liter, but roughly one gram per liter um, for a foyer spray. And um, at these low levels, you tend not to have really any issues with salt toxicities and things like that. Um, with the majority of plants in a majority of situations. Not always the case, so always test before you spray. Um, But, and for further resources on this, a really great book is called Sea Sea Energy Agriculture uh, by Dr. Maynard Murray. Um, This is a pretty fun book that actually Dr. Murray's uh, son reached out to uh, um, me and some colleagues when I was at the aquaponics source. And you know, it asked if you know we had heard of this book or any of the works of his father, and ended up sending us a few copies as a just a way to get his father's research out there and kind of show. And uh, Dr. Murray tested out using sea salt, and well documented its use in a number of crops and soil and hydroponics applications. Um, so if you want to learn more, really great resource. In general, if you wanna learn more about um, elements uh, that are in plants and humans and some of their roles, I think these three books are, you know, some of my favorites and my go-to, uh, and those would be Trace Elements as Contaminants and Nutrients, uh, martianers Mineral Nutrition of Higher Plants, and then The Handbook of Plant Nutrition. Um, and really all three of these are great resources Again, if you can't find the hardback copies, I think that if you search hard enough, um, you can find available copies online um, and great resources to have and read through when you're you know, having your morning cup of coffee or relaxing uh, throughout the day. Um, but so moving forward, is mineral nutrition enough? No, mineral nutrition is not enough. Um, in fact, solely focusing on mineral nutrition is the foundation of plant disease and insect pressures, and it is the reason why we, even in the midst of a insect apocalypse, where we have, I believe, upwards of 60% of our insect populations on earth uh, going extinct, um, we still see extraordinary, extraordinary pests and disease issues in agriculture, and it is predominantly a result of our mindset of looking at trying to focus on mineral nutrition. And then when things go wrong, applying pesticides, fertilize, fertilizers um, that are salt-based and a you know, very oxidative, um, and then also um, bleeding into those insect pressures. And it's also the same in the US, um, you know, results in the United States, when we see the food we've been eating in the last 30 or 40 years, um, you start to see kind of this, um, this development towards, we have an increase of heart disease, high obesity rates, endocrine disruption, mental health imbalances, increase in asthma, even in children increases in foodborne allergies, And this is all the result of our agriculture system and the way we have been conventionally doing it right now. And if we want to move past that, then we need to, and though this is a really great quote that uh, was in Dr. Manurge Burke that I showed. And uh, this is a paraphrase, but he said, the U.S. Is the most well-fed, nutritionally deficient country on the planet, and I couldn't agree with more. You know, I see we see this. I mean, in our obesity rates and our health issues, where we get an excess of food, but that food is very poor in nutritional quality, and it is very poor in uh, um, medicinal qualities. Um, And then, you know, that expands out to looking at human and animal nutrition, and this is pretty much how we see it now, broken up into, you know, minerals, carbohydrates, proteins, amino acids, lipids, vitamins, secondary metabolites, um, non-nutrient components like fiber, probiotics, even secondary metabolites would be in there. And typically, we focus on carbohydrates, proteins, lipids, and, you know, we Get the rest of our vitamins, signature metabolites, often from supplements because we're not getting them from our food, and that's an issue. And I think that's why we need to, you know, look past the mineral nutrition and start comparing well, um, how. So we actually need to uh, to wrap up here, and um, uh, uh, yeah. So so uh, uh, it was a really really awesome talk. Um, how do people find out more about you and and um, and what you're doing? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm just gonna skip forward a few slides here. Um, So to find out more, um, you can reach out to me at joe at region uh, aquaculture.com or follow me on Instagram or Facebook, um, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, any of the following.